This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. And the world is just going to be, it's going to be so normal for them to have recognition, to have status with Israel and to go to college, their vacation, their spring break, you know, absolutely, and and each other's countries. And so we got to see it from the perspective of not only a woman, but a Mm -hmm. child. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. Back in December, I sat down at the Reagan National Defense Forum with Morgan Ortegas, the former spokesperson for the United States Department of State, for a conversation on her involvement as the only woman on the historic Abram Accords team. Please excuse the extra noise from the hustle and bustle of the conference happening around us and enjoy. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Morgan Ortegas. Morgan served as a spokesman for the United States Department of State from 2019 to 2021. Additionally, she's worked in a variety of spaces around Washington, from political campaigns to USAID, US Treasury Department, the Atlantic Council, Ernst & Young, and to working as a national security contributor to Fox News, and be on top of all that, being in the active U.S. Navy Reserve. So, you know. A, a, a little busy. A, yeah, a little busy. You, got, you had a few things on your plate. And now we can throw a toddler on top of that. So I had a two. I, no one knew this because of, like, COVID. I was pregnant throughout 2020, so I was traveling oh around God. the world, you know, creating eyeballs and limbs and things during the pandemic. So it was pretty crazy. I had been pregnant during COVID. Yeah as well. Oh, you were? Yes. Oh, so you know. Yeah. So thank you so much. And we were, we're broadcasting or podcasting rather here from the Reagan National Defense Forum. So to begin our conversation today, I'd love to get a sense from you. Like what drew you into the field of national security? So I come from a family, a very military heavy family. My grandfather on my, my dad's side, my paternal grandfather was at the Battle of the Bulge Army. Really? Yeah. My wow. other grandfather was Marine. And then most of my, a lot of my uncles were in the service. Great-grandfather was a Navy chief, Mm -hmm. but it was all the men in my family. Yeah. I grew up in a pretty traditional Southern household where, you know, the women were cooking in the kitchen and the guys were telling war stories. And I always, and I have an identical twin sister as you, by the way, my twin sister and I always wanted to be in talking and hearing, listening Mm -hmm. to the war stories, which explains why I'm a bad cook now, (laughs) because I didn't spend any time in the kitchen with the ladies. Um, So I sort of had that element of service ingrained in me. Mm -hmm. And then when I was in college, like, most college kids. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I'd really been into music. I was studying opera. Mm-hmm. A spoiler alert, I did not grow up to be an opera singer. I'm, <laughs> I'm a great patron of the arts now, but did not grow up to be an opera singer. Mm-hmm. So 9-11 happened when I was in college. Yeah. I switched my major to political science. And I think like a, a lot of people, you know, it was a very moving and motivating moment mm-hmm. for me. So I actually have the privilege of, I, I worked in the Bush, Obama, and Trump administrations. Most people don't know that because I was a public Trump official, but I was mm-hmm. I was President Obama's deputy treasury attache to the Middle East and, and Saudi Arabia and the Navy. So I, 9-11 was a, was a clear, I, I think it sort of reignited in me all of those things that I had learned about duty and country and service and sac- 
sacrifice, and then I guess the rest is history. <laughs> and so you, so you switched your major, and then just got into government like right after. I went into a couple political campaigns. So I worked yeah. for my congressman, and and we did a lot in Bush 04. And then I went into. I think I got my appointment. I by the time I got my clearance and everything, it was early yeah. 2007. Yeah. So it was the last two years of Bush when mm-hmm. I was young. I was yeah. like 24, and so that's when I was at USA State. Went over to Baghdad. My parents thought I was absolutely nuts, <laughs> but it was. I mean, for me, yeah. you know, being young, it was the time of my life. I think it was actually really important to go to Baghdad so young because I saw so many things that we screwed up as a government and what we got wrong. And I really remember mm-hmm. thinking at that time, how in the world can we expect the Iraqis, the Sunnis, and the Shias mm-hmm. and the Kurds to get along whenever all of the branches of our government have a hard time coordinating? Absolutely. You know, that's funny that you say that one of my formative experiences was in the Pentagon uh, working Afghanistan issues. And mm. it was the same sort of experience going on the ground, getting out there and sort of seeing the, the bureaucratic dysfunction, how we couldn't seem to get to this unity of effort that we kept trying to what we kept saying was the solution to to winning these wars. So fascinating. So to turn to the decision that you wanted to discuss today, your involvement as the only woman on one of the most path-breaking diplomatic initiatives of the past 10, 15, 20 years, the Abraham Accords. So for our listeners that don't know, could you talk or explain to us the Abraham Accords and what was happening at the time that, that created the space for it to take place? So it was the first peace deals between Israel and Arab states in, in 26 years. And as somebody, so, you know, fast forward, not only was I in Baghdad for a little bit, but I, as I said, in the Obama administration lived in Saudi. And so mm-hmm. I knew the Gulf and knew these countries pretty well. Yeah. And I, I always thought when we were working on Abraham Accords, I always thought sort of, you know, various peace initiatives or recognition, normalization agreements would be something that would happen at the end of my career. It was, it was mm-hmm. almost shocking to me when it was happening that this, I was like, I was thinking how in the world is this happening? I really think it goes back to policies that we started to put in place at the beginning of the Trump administration. And I think, listen, I know that the Iran policy is one of the things, there's a lot of continuity in policy between Republicans and Democrats. The Iran portfolio is not one. But I am a believer that our max pressure campaign and the killing of Qasem Soleimani, taking him out, started to put pieces in place of what had already been happening for years, which we knew that Israel and Arab states have, and Gulf states specifically, have been working behind the scenes on an intelligence perspective, but that was never out and open in the public. And I was really lucky that Pompeo was fantastic to me and had me in most of his meetings. And I really learned a ton from him and was able Mm -hmm. to speak for him because I was with him, working with him. And similarly, Jared Kushner was great and really put a lot of trust in me and what he was doing because he had a a very small team. So whenever he was getting ready to roll out, you know, the peace plan that he had begun working on, and he, listen, he knew the challenges as well. No one had, you know, rose-colored glass that we were going to solve everything. But he put out that plan. And I will give a lot of credit to Yusef Otaiba because uh, Yusef very early on saw, he's the one who really cut through and saw the possibility of Hmm. potentially making a deal between UAE and uh, and Israel. So obviously he had to get his leadership on board, you know, which he did. But one of the things that I said, and again, I was a very small bit player on the Abraham Accords team because I was with Pompeo traveling around the world. And we really... Obviously wanted to focus on Abraham 
spinal cords, but we had the whole world to yeah. deal with, right? We had COVID. There's, we had a lot going on. Some things. Yeah, yeah. And, and we were still traveling, you know. Yeah. So I, I did not get the shared experience that the whole world have of, of locking down because yeah. I was on a plane every day and traveling with Pompeo. I mean, you couldn't zoom the Secretary of State. So another key player was Brian Hook, and everybody mm-hmm. thinks of Brian as our Iran envoy, which he was at the State Department, and he was fantastic. But he was diligently and quietly he and Jared and Adam Bowler who was head of the DFC for us and and Jared's small team Avi Berkowitz at the White House it was really this small cadre of friends mostly guys Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. as you just said Mm -hmm. and so when we started talking about what could go on with UAE I said having lived in the Gulf I said to Avi and Brian listen if you guys want to get Bahrain on board you're going to have to get Saudi you know Saudi is the big Kona Bahrain's not going to move without them so Jared at some point and I think Brian Hope was going with them had a trip and I said reorder your trip have Mm -hmm. Jared go to Saudi you know first to make sure that MBS understands what Bahrain is doing, has yeah. buy-in, because Bahrain's not going to stick their neck out if Saudi does it. Yeah. So that's going on. Meanwhile, simultaneously, I went with Pompeo to Sudan, and the focus, of course, and I, by the way, mm-hmm. you'll appreciate this, I was like 30, 32 weeks pregnant, and you know, my OB could not believe that I was still flying around the world, but I was hydrating, I was trying mm-hmm. to do everything I could do, and so I texted my OBGYN from Khartoum, and I said, just touch down in Khartoum, don't worry, it's only a day trip. <laughs> And she just sent me back an eye roll emoji. And I was like, I feel like I'm in trouble, but, you know. So I got kicked off the plane not long after that. They were like, enough, enough. No one wants you to have this baby on the plane. Yeah. So um, anyway, but we were stopping in Sudan because Sudan have been working for several years, as you'll remember, to get rid of that state sponsor of terrorism designation. And, yeah. and they were actually, at the time, incredibly diligent in working mm-hmm. with state and going through all the mechanisms uh, that is required, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it shouldn't be political designation you should have to work through those issues sure so we were there to meet about that and Mm -hmm. and you know obviously abraham accords as well like i said a great deal of the credit in my mind goes to jared and to brian and pompeo who were doing all this work behind the scenes and and i think from a strategic perspective you know i mean listen women always bring something a little bit different to the table and what they could do you know for me when they really wanted me to be the face and and talk about it and explain it to the media, I felt like that was so important because I'm Jewish. I was pregnant with a little baby Jewish girl in my belly. And as I was the face of this and, and going around and talking to, you know, the countries and the media, and they were so excited in the Gulf about this, I kept thinking, one day I'm going to explain to my daughter that I used to have two passports when I went to Israel, or I used to ask them not to stamp my passport. And my daughter is going to take flights from Dubai direct to, to Tel Aviv and go, what are you talking about, mom? That's wow. that's so weird. Yeah. I remember distinctly, because I grew up in the South, I remember my grandfather telling me about how there used to be different water fountains in the South, one mm-hmm. for white and one for colored. And I remember as a child being so confounded, thinking, why would you? That makes right. no sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought, my God, my daughter's going to have that same thought. But why would you need two passports? You're just you're just in the Middle East. So there's a really cool picture of a lot of us. I, I think it was about two weeks before I gave birth in the Oval Office with President Trump and the whole team. Mm-hmm. And it's like a sea of black suits. And I had like I was at the end of the maternity wardrobe. I had like one dress left <laughs> that was clean that day. And it was like leopard oh, print. That. It was leopard. It was not appropriate. It was some like really tight leopard skin dress. And I'm like trying to sausage my way into a blazer to put 
over it. And so we're standing at the Abraham Accords. And so I, I, you know, in the Oval Office, I'm the only woman in this picture. I'm very pregnant. And Trump keeps looking at me. And I know he's thinking, do not have this baby in the Oval <laughs> Office. Do not have this baby. And Robert O'Brien, who is a national security advisor, gets mm-hmm. a lot of credit because he looked at me and I think he felt nervous. And so at one point he went and got me a chair. And I'm like, no, really, I'm okay. And all the other guys were like, oh, thanks, Brian. Robert, you just made us look bad. So anyway, but it was yeah. such a special moment to be a part of the team and especially to be a part of that at a time, you know, when I was like thinking, wow, I'm going to bring a little Jewish girl into the world and we're changing the world. And I kept seeing it through her eyes because I thought every child in the Emirates in Bahrain and then, of course, later yeah. Morocco and Sudan, all of these children mm-hmm. are going to grow up with my daughter and the world is just going to be it's going to be so normal for them to have recognition, to have status with Israel and to go to college there or vacation yeah. there. Spring break, yeah. you know. Absolutely. And in each other's countries. And so we got to see it from the perspective of not only a woman, but a mm-hmm. child. When it's incredible as well, as you said, this is a diplomatic agreement that we sort of expected, like not in our lifetimes or certainly m- maybe in my son's, right? Right. But, but the fact that you guys saw this opportunity and were able to take advantage of that is, is absolutely incredible. Now, you also mentioned earlier the, um, the killing of Qasem Soleimani, yeah. and you were part of the discussions and the deliberations that that was happening. Yeah. And so from the outside, it was sort of like, wait, what? <laughs> this, yeah. this, this, this has happened. That was my reaction when they told me as well. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because, you know, I had been in the IC for a long time and obviously lived in the Middle East. So he was a figure I knew quite well. As you know, this had been something that many administrations had discussed because we were responsible for killing Americans, IRGC, mm-hmm. designated terrorist, you know, entity. But it was a very, very bold move, very bold action. And Pompeo yep. has talked about this quite a bit. He actually started putting some pieces into place when he was CIA director. He had instituted a new Iran cell there. And we knew that it would be an incredibly bold move. And so that day, I obviously couldn't talk about it, but my deputy was an Army 06 who had retired. He had worked for McMaster and then somehow yeah. drew the short stick to come work and be my deputy. <laughs> but he was a great guy. And so I couldn't contain myself anymore. Like yep. I think the day before I was, you know, I had known I don't know, maybe two weeks. And so I told him about the day before. I said, okay, we have to stay late tomorrow. I have to tell you why. I was like, I can't contain it. I have to tell someone because I couldn't tell my husband. Yeah. I couldn't talk to my team about it. So so that day I told my staff, we're all staying late tonight. I can't tell you why. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just, you know, all yeah. staying late. But anybody who's a part of these missions, any type of targeting role, you know, nine times out of 10, it doesn't work. Right. right? Like right. there's weather, there's this, there's something, ha- mm-hmm. you know, something always happens in, yeah. in these things. And it's like launching the space shuttle, right? right? right. It yeah. never goes off on the first try. Yeah. They always have to. <laughs> so obviously it, it, you know, it ended up happening that evening. And I will say, you know, my team, it was fascinating. The minute they called jackpot, I said to my team, we were on the sixth floor. I'll actually tell a self-deprecating story. So I was in this longer journey dress and high heels that's back when I used to still wear high heels and I was um, we all stopped after COVID exactly. pregnancy like, no. no thank you so we're up I'm upstairs in the situation room at the state department on the seventh floor they call jackpot mm-hmm. and I think okay I've got to run down to the sixth floor get my whole team get them upstairs get them in the op center like get, yeah. tell them what's going on you know yeah get, get them going yeah and so I'm literally running through the State Department in my high heels because I'm like, we've got to go. We got to like, we need to be in place before Pompeo gets back because he had gone over to the Pentagon. And anybody who knows the State Department knows, uh, you know, it, we need funding. It's yeah. not the nicest building. Yeah. And it's these That's... hard concrete floors. I tripped on my high heels. Oh, no. And I busted. <gasps> I oh, went no. and I went knees first.
first. Oh no. And I was so embarrassed because I thought I was the girl from Homeland in my head and I'm running, running to tell my team, we've got Qasem Soleimani. And I just, and I go, and I knees first. It was so bad. My knees were black and blue. I was limping. Oh no! I, I was limping for like a week. I was trying to do all these interviews on the uh, the state department, the second floor, the mezzanine with all the flags. And so I like bang on the door. My deputy mm-hmm. opens and he goes, "Are you okay?" And I'm like, "Get everyone and get upstairs." So this whole moment where I thought I was going to tell everyone, friends, colleagues, Qasem Soleimani is dead. Instead, I'm like limping. I think it might have been cut up, and I'm like, "Also, does anybody have a nice pack?" <laughs> so that was that was that was truly the moment. How it happened. Yep, yep. That's 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 that that rings so true. <laughs> I always tell everyone it's a little bit, you know, it's a bit of a mix of West Wing and Veep. Yeah, it's yes. not entirely yeah. one or the other. That's it's a little exactly bit, right. That's exactly right. So, in all of these experiences with Abram Accords and with Suleiman, did you did you feel that you were being a woman? impacted your approach to these issues or in the way the team tackled this or yeah. so why if not why not sometimes i do and, and sometimes i don't i will say that for me working for pompeo was a very egalitarian experience he's a tough yeah. boss yeah he's really tough and one of the things i appreciated about him is he didn't baby me when i was pregnant i think he yeah. forgot i think he just forgot <laughs> yeah. i remember at one point on one of my last trips we were on a plane on a sunday so where we would normally have suits on we were all a little casual and i had like on a present pregnancy t-shirt and he kind of i was like seven months and he like looked at my belly looked up at me and he goes are you okay i said you know I've been pregnant this whole time, right? I don't, I don't know if you remember that. So it was actually a very egalitarian experience for me. Like if he was tough on me, tough on yeah. Brian Hook, like, mm-hmm. and, and I really appreciated yeah. that, you know, yeah. being treated equally. Because yeah. you, you, there are some bosses who try to go easier on the women. I'm like, yeah. no, 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 I yeah. can take it. Like Absolutely. treat me, treat me the same as the guys. I do think that women, I do think that we think strategically different. And I, I mm-hmm. often saw that play out. I was very lucky to work so closely with Brian Hook and he really respected my opinion. And we would sit down, whatever the issue was, whether it was him or Pompeo, we would sit down and game out I'd say, well, think about it this way. This person needs to do this, needs whatever mm-hmm. situation there is around the world. And I think it's, um, yeah, we. I think we definitely bring a different perspective to the table. I think our minds, from a strategic perspective, just operate differently because we yeah. see the world a little bit differently. And that's a great thing. Yeah. That's awesome. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> if we're going to do this thing called strategic competition, yeah. like we need to have creative solutions and we've got to have you know the best people, the top talent at the, these tables. Yeah. Um, you know, Pompeo's top team, especially on the comms and senior advisor side, were all women. Yeah. So we had Lisa Kenna, who was career foreign service, now an ambassador. She was his exec. Mary mm-hmm. Kissel, who was brilliant in, in doing really the speeches and the long firm stuff. Mm-hmm. Katie Martin, who had uh, done a lot of political campaigns and brought yeah. a totally different perspective than even Mary or I were used to. But almost daily in his office, you had four women almost, you know, every morning talking to him and advising him. And so it was it was pretty cool when we went in. You know, some people would say, well, how is he? And I'm like, well, his top team's all women. Yeah. So it's good. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Like, thank you so much for joining us. Thank on you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Good to be with you. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.